This is uh, Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with uh, Wade Rush. Roush. Roush. Yep. Roush. Sorry to mess up the pronunciation. Wade Wade Roush. What kind of last name is that? It's German. Yeah? Yeah. It's uh, an Americanized spelling of a German word, R-A-U-S-C-H-E, which I've been told means smoke. So, but I'm not a German speaker, so I don't know. Yeah, cool. Um, and is your whole, like, have you confirmed the pronunciation of your name? Because I've recently had to explain to my whole family here in America, we pronounced my last name wrong. Like, like Roush, like, is I can that confirm that that's the way we, that's the it. way you do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so funny story. My last name's Servideo. Pretty like for the most part, people say Servideo. And over the years from time to time, someone would say Servideo. And I'd be like, oh no, it's Servideo. And I got to college and I had a buddy who knew Latin and he's like, your name's not, it's supposed to be Servideo. And I was like, why? He's like, well, Servi is servant or to serve and Deo is God. He's like, it probably should be D-I-O, not D-E-O. And I'm like, oh, funny you say that. If I go back in my family tree, it was pronounced D-I-O. And at one point in time, like family came over and they like misspelled it and it became D-E-O. And they're like, yeah, your name is Servi Deo. Yeah. I was like, huh, interesting. Right. And I think English speakers also have this um, urge to put accents on the second syllable because of basically Greek and, and a lot of Latin uh, works that way. So when it got Americanized, it probably sort of got Greekized as well. Like yeah. Servideo, you know, sounds like a lot of uh, Greek words. Yeah. So Interesting. Uh, well, Roush, I'll make sure not to screw that up again. Uh, Wade, appreciate you coming over this way. Where, where in Boston is home for you? I live in an apartment building in what used to be called the North Point neighborhood and is being aggressively rebranded as Cambridge Crossing. <laughs> um, and I haven't started calling it by that new name yet, but it's basically the neighborhood across the street from the Science Museum yeah. um, on the north side of Monsignor O'Brien Highway. Yeah. And it's where Education First has all its offices. Yeah. And it's also where there's a huge new um, commercial development, uh, real estate development going in. And they, they do actually brand that as Cambridge Crossing. They're trying to get us to call uh, the neighborhood by the same name. That's what they're calling that. That's interesting. So I, I recently moved from, I moved back from LA a year ago, lived in Winthrop for a year, but recently bought a home in Beverly. So I'll take the commuter rail in. Uh, but sometimes I, when I'm coming to the office here in East Boston, I'll just pop off at Chelsea and, and take a bus over to Maverick. But when I have taken the commuter rail into the city and you look at that, Cambridge Crossing area. It's nuts because that was a bit of like a no man's land, like a lot of lot of space, um, a lot of real estate there, but it's been built up like and not too different away in, in how seaports changed a lot since I came back. Do you do you like the way it's been developed? Do you feel like it's being true to the architecture of Boston and sort of like the the manner in which the the city has existed for so many years? Well, I have a deep side interest in urban planning and history and how cities grow. So it's interesting to live in a place like that that's being redeveloped so fast. And um, wherever I live, I tend to get into like figuring out the different layers of design and architecture and planning that went into that place. And so, you know, just by virtue of having lived there for five years now, I'm kind of familiar with how it started out as basically a wetland um, that was owned by one guy, a farmer named Leachmere, and he was huh. the namesake for the current um, Green Line stop. Yep. And 
you know, the um, Revolutionary Army went through there as they were evading the British in 1775. Um, it later got filled in most of it. Um, it was swampland and wetlands in the 19th century were considered to be hazardous, you know, disease breeding areas. So mm -hmm. um, the city, the city fathers and, and merchants uh, brought in lots of waste and construction, demolition debris and sort of filling in all that wetland. And what used to be Miller's River is basically just a little muddy um, offshoot of Charles now. Mm -hmm. But there was a real river that mm -hmm. went like all the way to what's now Union Square. Um, it's just all been filled in. And that former riverbed basically became a giant um, rail yard. Hmm. And for years and years, Boston and Maine and other railways came into the city that way. So there was there were a ton of bridges that would go across from the Leachmere area over to what's now North Station. And there was a roundhouse and there was a giant you know switching yard. And some of that's still there and is used by the MBTA. But um, the rest of it was sort of abandoned after the death of the warehousing and the rail industries in the early 20th century. And <laughs> I know this is only interesting to people who love urban this, planning, right? Um, so and history, me, you, you no, know, let's keep going. You can skip know. over yeah. this part if you're not interested. Um, but it, then it lay fallow as kind of a real no man's land for a long time. And it was partly a garbage dump and mostly just an abandoned rail yard and warehouse district. And, um, and then it started to be redeveloped starting in the 90s, so around the time when Leachmere itself and the Leachmere Canal and the Cambridge Side Galleria all got built. That was in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. That's when people started thinking about redeveloping North Point as well. Um, and I'm in, I'm in a building called the Regatta Riverview Building, which was the first um, residential building built in that area. And then, you know, was that built back then? It was like, built in 1998. Okay. So the building's 21 years old now. Okay. Did um, you move in early on? No, no. Okay. I've only been there for five years. Okay. Um, but I kind of study all the rest of this yeah. history. And and then um, EF came along, and they are very, you know, rapidly um, upgrading the neighborhood to meet their needs. And so EF is this scandinavian based um travel and tourism company with an emphasis on students and mm -hmm. they sell and organize international educational tours so if, like if you're in rome or florence or something you're probably going to see a huge group of students yeah. walking around behind somebody waving this ef banner and their headquarters is in norway i think okay um, i'm familiar with these kind of companies from right. studying abroad like student city type like the companies that sort of like help basically shepherd young people to and from countries. Yeah, that's yeah. what they do. Yeah. But they have For those gap years that Europeans know how to take much better than Americans. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that's their business. Um, I don't know whether they do full gap years. They probably do. Yeah. But they're also known for these shorter tours. And cool. their North American headquarters is in Cambridge, and they've been there for a long time. Um, and then they um, uh, moved from their first building into a, a newer uh, semi-skyscraper that's quite striking if you uh, walk or ride uh, past North Point, you know, like on the T or something, you'll see this building that looks like it has a gash down the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And it's ripped in half by this kind of strange um, uh, dagger slice of, 
of glass and mm-hmm. it's supposed to look like a waterfall. Okay. Um, and it makes what would have been a really plain, you know, white building really interesting. Yeah. So I think EF cares about design and they've landscaped all the grounds of both buildings really nicely. And they're really great citizens in the neighborhood. So, hmm. you know, they help clean up the parks. They have cool events. Um, like everybody who works there is probably like an average of 25 years old. So um, it feels like they bring a lot of youth and energy to the neighborhood. And they are currently right behind my building, just about to finish a brand new building, which is going to be the dormitory for, it's going to be a new dormitory for all the students who go to this business school they started, which is called Halt International Business School. What's it called? Uh, Halt. H-U-L-T. Halt. H-U-L-T. Okay. The Halts were the founders of EF. And okay. I think once EF got big enough, they decided to start a business school so that um, older students, college and you know grad school age students, could um, get an international business education at one of their campuses. And they've got campuses in Europe, and now they've got one in our neighborhood. And afford one? Like, is it a, like a, the program's affordable? Or... I don't know. I've never yeah. looked into it, but yeah. it's uh, it's you know Boston based, but it has an almost hundred percent uh, international student body. Um, so, okay. but I think they've had a shortage of. Oh, so when you said international business, I was thinking Bostonians getting like a global business education, but you're saying internationals in Boston getting been getting yeah. business education. It's a traditional business school. Okay. They offer uh, like a one or one and a half year MBA. Okay. But they market it to people from um, all over the world. I think a lot of the folks who go to Halt are from uh, Latin America and South America. So it's a really interesting crowd. And a lot of them live in my building, but they also need more dorm space. So they're about to open a new dorm um, in that same neighborhood. So, you know, everything's going on all at once in that part of Boston. And it was... It probably still is the single largest piece of undeveloped land, that whole North Point, Cambridge Crossing area yeah. in all of Cambridge. And that's why um, people were salivating over it for so long. Um, and a company called Divco West came along and acquired the property three or four years ago. And they are now aggressively developing it. And the first new building is about to open and it's going to be occupied by Phillips Healthcare, which is consolidating their whole North American operation in that one building. And then it's, if you looked at the plans, that building will be followed by another 15, you know, giant, um, you know, millions of square feet of wow. biotech space, office space and residential. So, wow. yeah, that's that's uh, really interesting that the, the infrastructure that you mentioned sort of between Leachmere and Union Square Somerville is some of that being repurposed into the new green line. Like, is there is that a overlap is, is, is that playing a role in like what e- EF's doing or is that something different or are they kind of working in concert yeah this is all happening at the same time um and i think these agencies and companies try to coordinate with each other but yeah it's certainly going to help with um commuters and access to the development when the green line extension is opened and all that construction is going on in the very same space right now so like, yeah in one lot you've got people building the Phillips Healthcare building and one lot over you've got people starting to work on the the new Leachmere station for the Green Line extension, which they've already cleared the right of way and have started to build a lot of the viaducts uh, all the way from Leachmere to uh, Union Square and in the other direction up to Malden. I think it goes all the way to yeah. uh, Tufts, to yeah. College Ave. So 
yeah, that's that's exciting. It's um, it's going to take a while. Yeah, you know, I think they're supposed to finish in twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two. It's already yeah, because it's already been pushed back. I have some yeah. friends that have bought like right along the Green Line as it's going out to Medford, and it's happening. It's just it's it's taking a little longer. I think initially, like seven years ago, it was supposed to be done by twenty twenty. Yeah, which I think it's going to be pushed out a little bit. Right, but not too bad. Everything in Boston yeah. takes longer than you think and costs more than you think it will. That's yes. just the rule. I mean, it's not just we're, Boston. Right? We're, I mean, we're sitting in a building right now, as I was telling you before we we hit the record button, that uh, Skanska made their headquarters when they were executing the big dig, which I think most Bostonians know took a little longer mm -hmm. and cost a little more, just a little bit more. It was worth it. Yeah. It was worth it, though. The city's beautiful above ground now where 93 used to. I can remember being a young young child and growing up in Methuen, Massachusetts, taking bus trips into the city to go to the aquarium and you'd be sitting in traffic on 93, like overlooking the garden to your right and the north end to your left. And now that whole area is just beautiful, green, um, sort of public way. Yeah, I agree. Boston has gone through a huge physical upgrade in the last 30 years. And I think it's a much more livable city. Um, the flip side of that is that it's a much more expensive city mm -hmm. and much more exclusive. And, you yeah. know, I don't think anyone's thinking too hard about, well, I'll take it back. I was going to say that um, one side effect of all this investment has been rising inequality. And I think that's absolutely true. And I was about to say no one's thinking about affordable housing. But in fact, there are tons yeah. of people thinking about affordable housing. Yeah. It's just getting harder and harder. The solutions are keeping up with the change. They're not. Absolutely no. not. Yeah. It's actually been something we've covered quite a bit on this podcast from different vantage points. Um, you know, one of the, one of the more interesting, one, one of the ones that just really rings through to me and you just triggered me right into it was like, the, and first of all, she's in an external communications role. You could be in a, in a external communications role for Cambridge crossing with all that. I mean, I imagine there's even more we can unpack there. Um, uh, but that like super helpful, like, overview of what's happening in that part of the city i think a lot of people like myself that try to be dialed in like what's going on in boston uh i had no idea um about all that that detail you just gave so that's that's super uh helpful and appreciated it's the sort of stuff that's it's nice to get out to the boston boston community but marty fuller is who i'm referring to she's the uh, head of external um communications for boston plan for excellence and boston teacher residency they run Dearborn STEM Academy, which used to be the Dearborn STEM School. So it's part of Boston Public Schools initiative to uh, incorporate STEM education into BPS. And so the, so the, in, in Roxbury, which, um, which Marty and her team referred to as sort of like the education innovation corridor of Boston, uh, it's actually the highest density of, of, of young people in public schools in the city. Um, they're all going to school there and, you know, even valedictorians as we've seen from the valedictorian project from boston globe in boston like near 50 percent of them are like jobless you know within a certain amount of years of of graduation which is unacceptable so what dearborn um stem academy is doing what marty's working on and she's kind of has this initiative where she's she i say she but the the, the group is partnering with the private sector to create strong connective tissue between companies as big as Microsoft to accelerators in Cambridge to smaller businesses like my own 
and uh, we're just creating a strong, fast feedback loop to help inspire and share with teachers and faculty what it what is the tech-driven Boston labor market now and into the future so that as people graduate, they can gain employment in those jobs and be on a career track to make the sort of incomes to live in the community that they believe is their home and want to be their home. Because a lot of um, the young people that are growing up in and around Boston quickly cannot afford it upon graduation. And that's before you even consider them going to college and, and, and accruing some debt, um, you know, as a, as a kicker and all this, but they just, even without, without any, uh, student loan debt, just the, the salaries alone of most entry-level jobs aren't really, um, enough to, to, to manage the, the income, um, or, or the rents that, uh, that are, that are going in Boston. So that's a, you just struck into like the, one of the big, um, sort of initiatives that are just general sort of themes that uh, I'm hoping Boston speaks up and the, and the folks that we've brought together on this podcast over time are going to try to introduce some frameworks for sharing, you know, amongst communities and, and trying to hope, you know, and hopefully uh, find frameworks. So if, if this Dearborn STEM Academy Council framework, where the private sector and the school system are working rapidly, and in the summer teachers are going to Microsoft and they're learning new skills and they're bringing that in the classroom in the fall and try to take that framework and even bring it to like adjacent communities, bring that, like I've, I've talked to the, the mayor of Salem, Kim Driscoll, she um, really became a prominent politician in what she did to help the Chelsea school system. But what she's doing on the North Shore, she's created Inno North, and she's really trying to create like an innovation district there and tether it to Boston. Um, Hub Week kind of plays an interesting role in all this too. Uh, the Merrimack Valley Chamber of Commerce is trying to do some things in Methuen and Lawrence and Lowell. And there's all these sort of disparate initiatives that aren't necessarily like speaking to each other. I think Hub Week is, is particularly a good conduit for them to speak to each other, but really love to scratch into it with you since you brought it up. Like what initiatives or things do you see like helping bridge the socioeconomic divide that exists in greater Boston generally? Because I think you nailed it. Like when I talk to folks and I ask them like, what's, you know, what's the, what's the thing that Boston most struggles with? And it's, it's sort of, it's access and it's like providing enough access to, um, you know, tech, you know, to innov the innovation economy and the, and the, and the job economy here. Uh, and, and part of having that access is being able to, uh, live near the, that innovation economy and, um, you know, have the opportunities to, to, to rise and whatnot. And, and, um, I've kind of gone on a, on a big monologue here, but just curious, like if you'd want to unpack any of your own personal, um, sort of back, you know, background and, and, and any initiatives that maybe Boston speaks up listeners myself should be aware of and sort of introducing to this like collective framework, because one of the one of the things that I'm working on right now is a visual representation of like all those like minds that care about what we're, what, uh, what we're talking about right now and like having like a map of what exists and then providing it to people. Like, for example, in the Merrimack Valley, there's a lot of young people that are becoming addicted to opiates and 
Um, they're very promising young people. And I had a, a friend of mine pass away a couple of weeks ago, lost his battle to addiction. And one of the things in talking to some of the civic leaders in the Merrick Valley, they believe that the issue is a lot of kids are living at home and they're depressed and, you know, they don't feel, they feel Boston is 3000 miles away. So one of the thoughts that a collective group of, of us have is, well, is there not a way to introduce to these young people pathways to success that aren't traditional, like resilient coders, like a, like a ability to learn a coding skill and then through a partnership with Microsoft gain employment and having not had to go to a four-year school and accrue all that debt, right? Because a lot of a lot of the solutions to people's problems only a few miles away from Boston actually exist. They just there's just not a good framework through which young people are getting access to the tools, the programs, the initiatives that can help lift them out of the situation they're in. So that's what I'm personally passionate in, and that's why I just went on a big monologue about it. Uh, but just yeah, just curious what your general thoughts are there. I'm sorry to hear about your friend. That's I, terrible. I appreciate that. Um, really, really appreciate you saying that. Yeah, he's uh, his his brother and I are best friends, and and he played baseball with my brother growing up. And um, his name's Joel Jigliotti, and he's a sweetheart. And he stepped up and helped counsel a lot of addicts over the years, and unfortunately lost his battle. But um, a lot of a lot of inspiring people. A lot of people have been inspired by him over the years. There's a young young man out of Methuen. His name's Calvin Cater. He's rising through the UFC ranks right now. He won a big fight the other day, and uh, he beat the crap out of someone. And uh, and he and he said afterwards he he was so determined to win the fight because he was on ESPN and he wanted to give a speech in in um, in tribute to Joel Gigliotti. So yeah, so I just wanted to say his say his name because he's. He's um he's a beautiful soul and and we'll see him soon and and his spirit and what he you know what he brought um in, in helping counsel young addicts is is something that that taught me and taught a lot of people uh a, a lot in this world and and I think there's a lot of ways that um we can learn from people like Joel and sort of bring um in in bringing more bringing to light um you know the good that is in people that have maybe gone astray. And that's what I'm really interested in is like, how do, you know, how do we focus on this, this sort of like this forgotten majority of, of people just in Massachusetts? Like I even look at Boston, who's an incredible partner to Boston Speaks Up, but they're, they just expanded to Tampa. And I'm like, what about Massachusetts? Like, how about Salem and O and Methuen and O and Worcester and O? Like, what about like all these communities and what about like connecting the state better? Uh, because there's tons of people in the state that have feel like are increasingly having no access and ability to come and um, propel themselves forward in life in the city of Boston. And that's on the civic leaders of right now to figure out. Uh, and I hope to play a role in, in that in the way that I know best, which is telling stories and, and facilitating and, and introducing and connecting people. Yeah. Well, I wish I had some better and uh, more immediate insights on this, but I think there are some longstanding policies like making sure that every new housing development has a certain percentage of units that are affordable. 
that's been a law in Cambridge and Boston for a long time. Um, but the percentage is small, right? Um, Do you know the percentage? It's, I don't know, I think it's like 15%. Yeah, it's something too, like that. Yeah. It, it, I, I will let you continue, but the, the Shy is a really good show that's on right now on Showtime. It's like documenting like the South Side of Chicago. And the app, like the, they talk about the rate at which you law for low income housing. And oftentimes it's between 10 and 15%, which is like wildly low. And at a minimum, you need to offer like closer to 25% in most urban areas, even to have like a fighting chance of allowing your like lower income class to have just like a baseline opportunity to like exist and like progress. Yeah. And with, and anything short of that is like, is you could argue, um, you know, unacceptable. Right. And I don't, you know, I don't want to give a short shrift to programs I may not even know about, but I, you know, my impression is that there's a, an infinite amount of work to be done in terms of creating opportunities, um, for let's just call them, you know, people who don't grow up with all the privileges, um, yeah. that, um, that you automatically have if you get into MIT or Harvard or BU or BC or Emerson or, or Northeastern. Um, and, and if you get a job at a startup and if you wind up being part of the, you know, uh, innovation ecosystem around Boston, I think the basic problem is that the, the innovation ecosystem around Boston is so strong. It's so thriving and, and uh, has so much money, um, maybe, maybe not compared to Silicon Valley or New York, but compared to everywhere else on earth, this is basically one of the densest uh, concentrations of talent and money in, in the known universe, mm -hmm. right? And that means that you don't have to do anything in the terms of outreach to your local community in order to get talent. You can basically recruit from the whole world mm -hmm. and people will feed a path to your door mm -hmm. uh, and you will have no shortage of, you'll be able to get the best people no matter what. Um, so you can put zero effort into connecting with local high schools and um, local community colleges and the whole K-12 system and the whole higher education system because you're going to be able to get the best students from Stanford or, you know, NYU or Notre Dame or, you know, Northwestern, no matter what, they're all going to come here. Um, so, you know, I, and I think it's really sad that companies don't think more broadly that they, you know, we live in a meritocracy. That's just the bottom line. We yeah. live in a straight up extreme meritocracy mm -hmm. and the spoils go to the the people with the who are perceived to have the strongest skills mm -hmm. and those are the folks who had all the advantages growing up who were born in the right zip code and had smart ambitious caring parents who made sure they learned how to read and made sure they got into good schools and worked hard to get good grades and good test scores mm -hmm. and checked all the boxes that you have to check in order to be you know, a certified member of the meritocracy in this country. And, 
And I, you know, I speak as one of those people. I'm not trying to hold myself outside of that. Yeah. I went through the whole whole damn system myself. Yeah. Um, it's just that there is no room into the inner circle for anyone who didn't go through that system. Yeah. And and companies like just look at all the companies that have offices in Kendall Square, um, Microsoft, you know, um, Facebook, Apple. Um, Yahoo in the day, you know, all of the, the major internet companies and high tech companies, you know, and that's to say nothing of the, um, the pharmaceutical and biotech industry, which basically it's world capital is Kendall Square. Um, all these companies are able to get the best people no matter where they come from. And again, I mean, you know, there may be individual efforts that I'm, I'm overlooking. You know, for example, I think Biogen has a pretty cool uh, little outreach program. Um, they've converted a building on their campus in Cambridge into a, a kind of K twelve oriented laboratory space for kids, and it's cool. Yeah. Um, but there needs to be far more of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't see school buses lining up at Microsoft every day and kids trooping in, you know, to learn how to code at the New England Research and Development Center. In Kendall Square. Mm -hmm. It's not to say it doesn't happen, but I don't see the buses, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, uh, yeah. I think that we're falling down on the job, and if we limit ourselves to the the quote unquote best candidates, we are absolutely depriving ourselves of loads of talent who would be good at their jobs and would think more creatively if only they could get a foothold inside these industries. Yeah. And work their asses off when given the opportunity. Yeah. So I, I want to scratch into something you said and also kind of get into like, we, there's some of the, you get, get some super thoughtful answers in the, the pre-podcast interview that we'll publish with the post um, and a bit about sort of the, the delineation between like, and you've had firsthand experience in San Francisco and Boston. And this has come up before where like, San Francisco is like very, very money driven and Boston. And one thing I hear a lot from people in this, I, you know, uh, uh, Clement Kazlock from the managing director of Techstars, I talked to recently and we'll have a podcast coming out with him. Uh, Lucy Maffei at the time she was at Boston or she's a Boston Business Journal reporter now. Uh, the two of them talked a lot about how the, the mentorship of Boston entrepreneurs, the willingness of um, Boston's elite, if you will, in the innovation economy to mentor the next generation is uh, really second to none. And these are from people who have experienced it. You know, Lucy was reporting for TechCrunch in Chicago. She reported for NPR in DC. And she's like, and she's from Italy and she's coming to the stage. She's like, like the, the, the manner in which the community looks out for it, each other in Boston is unique. And I, this is why I particularly, I think is opportunity um, for us to do like even more and even more. Uh, but, yeah, but with yeah, respect, yeah, I mean, who's being mentored, right? Exactly. So the, so to the point about, so the second point, meritocracy. So you're hundred percent right. Like I am an example of someone who like is it's a narrower funnel of people that came out of my like Methuen Methuen. And, and I'm thinking of like a few of my friends in particular, like we all checked those boxes you mentioned and I went to BU and you know, my other, you know, my other friends went to Villanova and went to Johns Hopkins and went to these like really elite schools and they got in the meritocracy and they, and one thing that happened to all of us in the meritocracy vis-a-vis -vis maybe folks who had a little bit more support financially from a family that could support them is we all climbed the ranks really quickly. And wherever we ended up, we very, very quickly outworked and and outpaced and and our peers. Like 
by and large, this is based on evidence of a small sample size that is my network. Um, and so my point here is I've hired Ivy Leaguers. I've hired the folks that on paper are like, they have the skills required to be like a, like a be top employee at our media business. And they have been, had, they've lacked work ethic and they've lacked some of the soft skills required to execute the job. And then we've hired people from whether it was, it didn't matter what school they went to, but we've hired folks that were running an enterprise rent a car or were the barista at a coffee shop. And we're like trying to like their resume didn't fully line up with every hard skill required for the job, but they were in a, but they were working at a restaurant or they're working behind a coffee bar and they were working their ass off. They were working a couple jobs. They were putting themselves out there. And the second they were given the opportunity, they, they outpaced everyone that we had around us at the organization. So I do believe that there's a little bit of a false narrative around the folks who kind of graduated in the meritocracy, having this like perfect resume where like this, like as much as we're becoming this advanced, like innovation driven society, human beings still require soft skills to be successful of which includes like loyalty, humility, Humility is huge. A lot of these people who like had their parents like taking care of them the whole lives, like aren't necessarily coming in the workforce, like, like willing to work. They're expecting to be given something as opposed to like working to earn. And so there's, there's, I, I, I believe there's a lot of opportunity to go after a different talent pool um, that maybe has a slightly different resume and maybe needs a little bit more um, short term uh, help um, and frameworks through which they can get themselves up to speed on certain hard skills, but in the not too distant uh, short term will quickly, will quickly pay off in spades because you will have loyal, hardworking, humble employees. Yeah. You know, I hope when I was talking about the meritocracy before, I hope it came through that um, I was using it with, you know, ironic air quotes around it. For sure. And I, you know, the word meritocracy is our way of whitewashing institutionalized classism and racism. Yep. Okay. And that's what I really mean. And so um, the one bright spot I think that I do see is that online learning is becoming better and cheaper. Sure. And you can get, uh, you know, a degree to an accredited, from an accredited school. online and it costs a lot less than Mm -hmm. showing up at the campus and getting the very same degree Mm -hmm. and that's all amazing because it's going to finally disintermediate some of these um institutions that are in charge of um reinforcing the meritocracy Mm -hmm. and so if you can get you know a degree from georgia tech you know online and uh and get a great job based on that degree then then that's your way in yeah and 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 so that's really happening. That's a real thing. It's super important, oh, yeah. and um, and it's happening at the level of private enterprise through you know these online uh, companies like Udacity and Coursera, and it's happening at the level of universities that are getting their act together. Not all of them, but some of them. And um, I, I hope it continues into the corporate world, and that eventually most companies understand that they should be searching for people who are 
you know, self-starters who are ambitious um, and who want to grow. And like those are the most important qualities. And have Not, no other option. Like, that, oh, that would help. Yeah. That makes them maybe a little more motivated. Yeah. But like if you're looking for Can't a person who fail. already understands how to code C++ for this particular application in this particular industry and that's all you want, then fine, you'll get that person yeah. and you'll fill that box, but you will get, you might not get the most interesting or, or um, productive or creative person. And so if people started uh, thinking of talent differently, I think yeah. it can make all the difference. Yeah. Um, I just don't, you know, I'm a little pessimistic. It seems it's not happening as fast as I'd like. Oh yeah. You're just being thing. realistic. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm speaking, I totally understood where you're coming from from the meritocracy points. It was more just responding to kind of, in the in the lane of verbiage that you were that you were using so totally on the same page like and so another point you just brought up i'm reminded of a conversation i had with lauren landry one of our guests who i mentioned to you earlier offline um kind of became a prominent tech journalist at boston in the early days she's at harvard business school online now and she's doing some really interesting things that you know you alluded to like Mm -hmm. certain universities stepping up and just creating um not just like and it's not like an mitx kind of like here or um you know like itunes you you can go on and take like the y combinator class at stanford which i've actually done and it's free and you essentially get like the lectures and some coursework but what harvard business school online is doing it costs a little bit of money but certainly not to the extent of what a full business degree costs you can um in, it have interactive uh education and you can get like a little bit of that like you're in a, you know there's certain times during the week where you're like in a virtual room essentially with classmates and there's like interactive questions and there's peer to peer conversation in addition to, to student to teacher conversation. And I think that that's a really good point. That's like one of the particular things I think is valuable to again, communicate and shepherd to those who maybe don't know it exists. Like the, the other concern that I have too, is like, is it as simple, you know, I've, I've, I, I, um, was a Lawrence Eagle Tribune deliver, paper delivery boy for years. My family held on to the route for a while for extra scratch and a uh, proud recipient of a Lawrence Eagle Tribune scholarship. When I went off to college, I bought my, my gateway computer in, uh, in 2003. Nice. Yeah. Nice old gateway. That thing was a <laughs> tank. I graduated from college and um, I was able to gift that to my brother um, who needed a computer. That thing lasted for like a while. Um, the reason I bring up the Eagle Tribune though, is, you know, the local, you know, local news and their ability or inability to some, in some case, not their own fault, um, to have enough resources to invest the time in establishing connective tissue to some of these topics and shepherding information to people. I don't know. Is that the, is that the role of local news? Like whose role it is? So it's not, again, I mentioned this earlier. It's not so much that solutions don't exist. It's that solutions like, cause there's very innovative solutions out of Boston to like educate people. And you hit on it with like, 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 like e-learning is huge. And just for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to be cracking into the communities of people that need it most, it, by and large. And yeah, I well think played. that's safe to say. So, and I and I don't I don't think anyone has like if we had the solution to that, then you know it it would be, it would be apparent. It's just one of those things that just sort of exists. I do find that 
again, to the point, to the point in the difference between like a Boston and a San Francisco, I do think people in Boston are more likely to address and solve that socioeconomic divide more than the Valley is. Like I believe in the, in, in the purposeful approach through which, you know, Bostonians like to look out for each other. Um, I think it's safe to say we can call you a Bostonian at this point, Wade. How many years has it been since you since you moved here? Uh, I've spent more time here in my adult life than anywhere else. I grew up in Michigan, moved here at age 18, um, and spent 12 years here. Then moved out to San Francisco and spent nine years. And then moved back here and spent four years. And then moved back there and spent three years. Mm -hmm. And then moved back here and spent five years. So I think I've lived here like um, for 20 years, mm -hmm. 25 years. Um, so uh, I don't feel like a Bostonian in the sense of like an old school Bostonian. Um, mm -hmm. But um, I feel sometimes I say like I'm bi-coastal. I'm equally happy in San Francisco or in Boston. Um, I, I, there are wonderful things about both cities that I love, and there are awful things about both cities that I hate. Um, and I, you know, I, I, there's plenty to complain about and, and look at and study in, e in either place. Yeah. So there's plenty, plenty to write about too. So, but yeah. Um, okay. If you want to pin me down, then I would have to say, yes, I'm from Boston. God, I wasn't going to let you leave unless you said that. All right. Um, no, that's, uh, that's glad, glad to hear that. Where, so Charlotte. 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 That's how it's pronounced. So it's so it's it's spelt the same as Charlotte, North Carolina. It but is a little town in Michigan, and it's uh, called Charlotte. And I think it's pronounced that way because it was named after the, the wife of the founder, one of the founders of the city, and and her name was Charlotte. It was pronounced the French Charlotte. way. Got so it. So that just stuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the town myth anyway got it got it and so that's not too far from east lansing it's about 20 miles south west of lansing okay so it's about 25 miles yeah. southwest of east lansing got it got it i gotta get my just my lansing and east lansing's right so obviously i appreciate the, kind of going down this rabbit hole with me uh, over uh the socioeconomic issues of our time um and appreciating like some of the historical context you given on on the city of boston i think that stems from uh is it a history degree you have right yeah yeah from yeah. Harvard, harvard college uh yeah my undergrad yeah. degree is in history of science okay and so it is a history degree um but specifically in the history of science and then my phd is in history of technology so a lot of history there but uh not looking at your standard sort of social or political history yeah more focusing on um where does science and technology come from and what, how do they work? What defines them? How do they fit into society? Um, who becomes a scientist or an engineer? Uh, how do their innovations filter down um, into um, our politics and our communities? Um, how much control do we have over the kinds of technologies that we live with and use every day? Those are the things that I you know, basically got fascinated by in college and went on to study that in grad school. I think like a humanities scholar, um, when I'm doing my journalism and that might have been the you know biggest reason to go and do a, a PhD or was you know you don't really actually need a doctorate in order to be a journalist <laughs> um, nobody does um, it was kind of a a lark in a way I, I was just 
intellectually curious and I had an opportunity to go to grad school and, you know, I got um, the government and MIT to pay for it. So it was a great experience and I'm glad I did it. Um, but it certainly wasn't a prerequisite for going into journalism. And in a way, it was just a way of delaying my um, my entry into the real job world. Right. Right. Um, but, you know, um, I'm glad I did it. Yeah. Me too. You have a you see you have a podcast I want to talk about, and like they, I mean I'm I'm fast forwarding a little bit, and feel free to double click a little more into like you had a, eight, I think it's 2007 to 2014, like about an eight year tenure at at Exconomy, which right. is how I came to know you. Uh, 2007 was when I started my career in Boston as sort of like a tech publicist, and um, that's right when we were starting Exconomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like right around the time, and um, still to this day, like. Um, have a good friendship with like Greg Huang mm-hmm. um, and some of the team there, which I'm, I'm sure you do as well. And and then over the years, um, sort of in the last five years, like it's been interesting. Like again, I mentioned this to you offline. Like coming back to the city of Boston from LA, I was sort of going through my brain of like who are the voices of Boston that I would get information from about the innovation economy, um, of which way you were in that group. And I saw that you were um, part of this uh, co-founder, part of this Hub and Spoke Collective, which I love to talk to a little, little bit. But then I sort of double clicked and kind of saw your your soonish podcast, which kind of scratches into what you're alluding to, kind of which seems to like be a big cres- like like crescendo moment for you in your career. And you can tell me if you disagree, where that education, that history of science and technology education, sort of like comes full circle. And, and I love the optimistic manner in which you conduct your podcast, which is like, Hey, we actually have a little bit more control here. Humans. Hey, humans. Hey, here, here I am waving. Like we're, we actually can just learn together to comprehend and understand the manner in which these amazing innovations and technologies impact and will, you know, in some, in some ways, perhaps govern new manners in which we live our lives. Uh, but it's accessible to us all and let's talk about it. Uh, and that to me is what Soonish is. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because I was like, well, first of all, that's like an amazing podcast for Boston Speaks Up and Boston No Readers to learn about. So great, like I'd love to spread the word about this this amazing audio storytelling initiative that you're all about. And also would just love to hear more about it and catch up with you myself. So appreciate that, um, that we went down some other rabbit holes first, but yeah, I would love to hear more about you know, why and, and, and why you started soonish and, you know, correct me if I messed up a little bit of the overview, but that's sort of my interpretation of it from afar, uh, for what it's worth. And, uh, and yes, yeah, like super, super grateful for the, the time that, that you're spending on it. Cause I think it's when you look back in time or when you consider the types of things we've been talking about, you're archiving important conversations that, will make these science and technology innovations more accessible to more people. And I think over time, as audio becomes more an accepted and, and, and better distributed and discovered uh, medium, which it, which it is, but more, even more and more so, I could see Soonish playing like a critical role in filling that gap of um, education and knowledge transfer that's required for the collective you know, society to come together and have a, a bit of a um, understanding and concert. Wow. Well, 
I, I, I feel really gratified that you put your finger on so many um, of the things I am trying to do, and you got it. You know, you got it down. Uh, it's, it's that means it's working on some level. Cool. If all that stuff is coming through. The yeah, the show is called Soonish, and I started it about two years ago, early 2017. I've made about 24 episodes since then, and the show is, you know, the name is supposed to evoke the future, and that is roughly the topic area that the show kind of revolves around. Although I take a lot of liberties, and um, every episode is connected to technology in some way and where technology is going. Um, but sometimes to find out where technology is going, you have to ask where technology has been. And so kind of reflecting my um, training and my interest in history, a lot of the episodes do look at um, episodes in the history of technology. and. A lot of them look at episodes from uh, Boston's history because that's where I live. That's where I'm embedded. And so the show, because I, you know, can I work for myself. I am the host and producer and editor and uh, I can do whatever I damn well please with it. Um, I, I do allow myself to go off in some directions that um, might not seem at first like they're really going to teach you much about um, the future. But um, I hope they do in some circuitous way. And the motto of the show is the future is shaped by technology, but technology is shaped by us. And so what you were saying earlier about how the show can be maybe an archive of conversations demonstrating how, how much control we actually do have, um, talking to people who are either innovating around technology or figuring out how to be more proactive around technology and what technologies they want in their lives. All these people are sort of examples of that principle that um, technology doesn't get like, it doesn't land on us from space, right? Right. It doesn't pop out of some extra dimension. Yeah. You know, we actually build it. Everything that we use was built by somebody for a reason and everything about it represents a decision at yeah. some point. And there are other shows that, you know, go into this, um, the show that inspired me to start my show is um, a very famous podcast called 99% Invisible. And uh, was started by Roman Mars uh, like nine years ago. And it's a show about architecture and design. And the main uh, argument, I think, although the uh, individual episodes, you know, kind of pop all over the place. Mm -hmm. I think the main mission of the show is to show you how no matter what thing or place you pick as your topic, there's like almost an infinite uh, amount of depth there in terms of the human and historical stories you can tell about how it got that way. Yeah. You know, how, who designed that? What decisions are built into that? How does that affect the people who go there or use that thing or um, inhabit that place now? And so, in a similar way, um, I hope it doesn't seem too derivative of 99PI, but what I'm trying to do is uh, import a similar outlook to, to my own sort of uh, passion, uh, my own area of passion and interest, which is this, the large technological systems, the large and small technological systems that we use and 
that kind of define the um, feeling of our lives, the tenor of our lives, whether that's like a big system like the internet um, or whether it's a, a small system like um, the gadgets that we carry around. In some ways, those right. are interconnected because yeah. our smartphones are the endpoints of the internet. Yeah. So it's all one big system and um, it may feel distant and overwhelming. It may feel like you have no control over how it evolves, but that's actually not true mm -hmm. because all of these systems are guided by our collective decisions as consumers, yep. uh, for sure, in what we buy, but also as voters and who we elect and what kinds of policies those people support. Um, and just as citizens, like, yeah. so I'm trying to make uh, my listeners into better citizens, better technology citizens. And there's definitely that outreach component to the show. I want people to learn more about the technologies around them and I want them to go away feeling more empowered. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And, I, and one of the things you mentioned in the, the pre-podcast interview, like you're keenly interested in machine learning, you think as most of us should, and you kind of just hit on that where like all of these things are interconnected more and more. And in a lot of ways, that's, what machine what machine learning is and what a lot of advanced um advanced technologies these days are like even you know, i work a lot in media and advertising can you consider the advertising world and you consider all the you know the the value in data you know there's data is so important like the the collection of data is so important and so valuable that a company a company that will remain nameless, but a large device manufacturer that um, whom I'm close with um, has shared shared with me re this past year at, at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas that their goal is to make their um, their smart TVs free for consumers, and they believe that they can keep driving the price point down such that if people opt in to sharing like their glass level data, it doesn't matter how they consume content on their television screen, but if they will share the um, like a much a, a, the deepest, most intimate level of, of data capture off the screen of their television um, into systems that that they hopefully would trust, uh, that could essentially drive the cost of, of televisions down to all but zero for consumers because the data licensing business for that device manufacturer is so much more significant feeding into a tens of billions of dollar advertising industry that they don't need consumers to hand out money when the attention economy is um, has all these machines working and learning about behaviors and increasingly serving up you know, personalized ads offers to us at the you know at the right time and place like so that's just a advertising example but i think when you mentioned machine learning like i i thought to myself in my own sort of um selfish way i thought of my own my own world and just how much you know machine learning and and that for some that can be fearful for some people that like for you know, i'm particularly bullish on on knowing enough about who's collecting and 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 doing so secure you know securely and taking privacy proper private you know privacy into account I'm actually kind of bullish on giving data um not so much my child's data um, but I'm really as a as a 
30 something year old, you know, 34 year old uh, consumer, I actually quite like the personalized manner in which I am served uh, and would, would like it to, if anything, get better. So I think if there's enough, um, you know, reward, I think people will be, will be willing, you know, to do so, but just, that's just my own color commentary on like machine learning or, you know, applied to advertising and the, and the value of data. I'm just curious, like from a machine learning standpoint, what, you know, what types of applications do you feel like are misunderstood or, or particularly valuable to educate people on to have it be less of this, like, grand, you know, grandiose topic that, God forbid they could comprehend because they're not an engineer. And then when in reality, like the, the concepts are relatively, um, you know, I wouldn't say basic, but it's the collection of disparate data sets, um, you know, combined together to, um, draw inferences. That's sort of like an inference. Yeah. So like, yeah. So, so speak on that a little bit. Well, machine learning came up in our, pre-interview right yeah and you asked me what technologies i was interested in excited about um and i i did list machine learning and you know it's on my radar because i think it's so um important and significant and having such an impact right now and the little story you just told about uh an appliance company or electronics company being willing to give away its televisions in exchange for the right to surveil you, um, you know, on every <laughs> every show you watch and every game you play, and every ad that you sit through, um, that's a great example of um, how the the value and the power of data are growing. And I'm a little bit horrified by that example. Mm-hmm. We can come back to that. <laughs> we can come back to that. Um, I'm 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 interested in machine learning. Uh, because I think it's changing the way we um, experience e-commerce and uh, it's changing user interfaces and it's, it's, it's making computers smarter very quickly and all those things. Um, and not always in um, positive ways. You know, some of the stuff that's happening is a little scary and we can talk about that. But at a high level, yeah, what is machine learning? I think it's just important that people do understand that it sounds like a black art, it sounds like wizardry, and it's actually kind of, uh, and the nuts and bolts of it are incredibly dull, right? Yeah. Um, basically, it's just, yeah, it's collecting as much information as you can about the world. Um, like, for example, recording voiceover internet calls, just recording the content of phone calls um, or conference calls or what people say in voicemails, um, or what they talk, what they say to their um, their home assistant devices like Google Assistant and the HomePod and and Alexa and Siri, just taking all of that speech data and loading it into the memory of a, a giant um, cloud computer, and then cranking away on it um, to identify patterns in the, in the, in the waves, sound waves. Yeah. And in some cases, checking back and seeing how those patterns correspond to the actual transcribed speech 
Um, so you can basically what I'm saying is through through machine learning and um, applying machine learning to these giant data sets, computers can figure out how speech works without ever being taught directly. Like they can just go around all of the rules of grammar and yeah. they can kind of intuit how language works with a little bit of training and reinforcement. Yeah. Um, and so like if you have like a whole, uh, say a, a United Nations conference that gets recorded on audio in several languages, and then you have a whole bunch of people at the UN and their job is to go and transcribe that afterwards, then you wind up with this giant data set that's perfect for machine learning yeah. and for machine translation yeah. because the same content got translated by humans yeah. into multiple languages and it got transcribed. Yeah. And if you put all that into a giant machine learning system, you're helping it to learn not only how English works, but how French works and how Chinese works. Right. And um, so that's oh, yeah. and, and we have so much computing power available to us now and so much storage uh, that this kind of learning is happening, you know, with lightning speed. And we're getting to the point where natural language, which is the field of computer science concerned with uh, helping computers understand how we speak and how we write um, and helping them communicate in those same ways. That field is almost, I would say, very close to being solved, right? Um, computers aren't conversational yet. They can't yeah. keep up in terms of the content. But they can understand everything that we say, yeah. and we can understand everything they say. It's a solved problem. So we're ra and we're rapidly getting to the point where, um, based on an analyzing tons and tons of human conversations, whether online or on the web or in podcasts or on phone calls, they can actually start to understand a little bit about the content too. Yeah, and they can f they don't understand in a conscious, sentient, intellectual sense. Yeah. They're, just just in the yeah. they're just intuiting patterns, patterns. right? Yeah. And they're faking it. Yeah. But it's a useful fake. And it's it, it's improved fake. And it's improving really, really fast. Yeah. So we're in, yeah. the, in the very near future, we're going to be having extended, totally fake conversations with yeah. machines that sound like they understand us, yeah. but don't, but sound like it, yeah. but close enough to make it useful. Yeah, right? the degree of certainty is getting better. So there's a, there's a tool out there that you, you kind of just reminded me of. It's called otter.ai. Mm -hmm. Have you ever used it? And this is, again, to exemplify how valuable it is to feed that speech um, into the cloud for for AIs um, or for uh, for machines to learn more about speech and, and, and see those commonalities and patterns in speech. So otter.ai is a free tool. So like we record, like our business will... We'll, we, we're storytellers. We conduct tons of interviews with the, with the clients we work with, and we always record. We record the conversations, and and um, you know it's it's valuable to go back to a tr to a transcript. So we could take the a call the call recording we have. So we'll interview a new executive. All these questions like, you know, what's your stance on privacy? Like, what's your all right? What's what's the mission you see for the business? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Take all these. Take that long um, call recording, and we'll throw it in Otter AI. Otter AI. We'll transcribe the call in 15 minutes. The entire call will be transcribed with timestamps and whatnot. Yeah. And from having our own account on Otter.ai, and because we're a certain business that operates at sort of the intersection intersection of media and technology and has some of the common phrases and verbiage used over time, we've noticed the transcriptions have gotten more efficient. So that so because usually we have some some of the team will come in and kind of clean up the subscription because Otter AI is not always getting it perfectly right. But over time, we're actually getting cleaner um, 
uh, much, much cleaner transcriptions than we yeah. did six months ago. I don't use Otter, but I've used two other systems that do the same thing. Basically, there's yeah. one called Trint, T-R-I-N-T. And the one I use mostly now is called Sonics, S-O-N-I-X, which is also at sonics.ai. So I guess that, that .ai domain name is yeah. very popular among yeah, yeah. these transcription companies. But Is that one free or is that one? No, none of these are free. Okay, um, yeah, but... Otter, is Otter free? Yeah. Oh, amazing. Check it out because we were we actually use Sonics a little bit. Trip is expensive. Yeah. yeah. Sonics is medium. Yeah. It's five bucks an hour of audio. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's totally worth it for me because I, you know, have the same workflow as you. I do a ton of interviews. And before I can sit down to ever write a script or develop an episode, I need to know what we talked about. So I need a transcript. I used to take notes live in every interview. Like I would yeah. be sitting there talking to someone. And I would be yeah. typing on my laptop and, and coding. Yeah. I like, I got so fast at typing over the years that I could actually take verbatim notes, um, wow. and come up with a clean transcript at the end, but, um, Wade.ai. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was my own <laughs> yeah. transcription service. Yeah. And I stopped doing that as soon as the technology got good enough because, um, inevitably when you're doing that, you're putting some of your brain power toward this processing task of actually typing. And I got really good at it, but I started to notice like, okay, what am I really doing here? When I was thinking about what's going on in my head. So someone's speaking, mm -hmm. um, that information is going in into kind of a buffer in my head mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm, ex I'm extracting it from the buffer and translating it into these keystrokes on the laptop as fast as I can, but not in real time. Mm -hmm. So I'm typing what they said a second ago. Right. Um, and then it's going into the computer. I'm kind of watching while I'm typing. Um, but all that whole time, I'm still listening to what the person's saying. So there's like at least two different streams going on. There's what they're saying in real time right now. And there's what I'm typing, which was a second or two ago. And then there's a third stream, which is me trying to figure out what I'm going to ask next or where yeah. this conversation's going or what questions haven't I asked yet, strategizing at the higher level. And it's just exhausting. Like it's, I mean, the brain. Actually, You're compartmentalizing your brain. Yeah, yeah. Heavy. And you can only over do that. the course of a conversation. Right. And it's just exhausting. <laughs> yeah. And it's much, much better when I can just focus on the conversation. Right. So I record all of my interviews Great. now, whether or not it's for podcast, because this transcription software is so good that uh, I don't need to put any of my brain power into that task anymore. Yep. It's a fantastic example of the benefits of machine, oh, machine learning. Like, absolutely. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, the same technology could be applied to, um, to do real-time transcription of surveillance video or audio, right? And a lot of people who are concerned that Alexa and Siri are listening to us all the time. Yeah. Um, and they're not, you know, they only listen when you speak their wake word and when like for a certain number of seconds after that. But um, sometimes, you know, in that time, Apple or Amazon get enough data to learn something. And, and I think, I don't know. I mean, you have to go ask them whether they're storing mm -hmm. that data and doing machine learning on it. I bet you they are because it's getting better over time. Yeah. Well, that's actually where, and, and actually I, I don't net out where I'm like, I, I like the idea of giving data to get uh, more personalized, uh, efficient life. I don't necessarily love all the data off my teeth. So like, like to go back to the device manufacturer, like I'm not crazy about like every parcel of information in my living room, like going somewhere um, or, or being sort of like, given away um, on the on the automatic content recognition side of things ACR the thing that I've read 
And I think the thing that New York Times has documented pretty well and the concern over the listening technologies is in a similar way that when your TV's off, you see a red light, your TV's on. It's on because it's waiting for a remote to right. say turn on. Yeah, and it's actually using a surprising amount of electricity when it's still on. It is, yeah. if you look at if you look at your home energy bill. So yeah. in the similar way, Alexa is on. And while Alexa's waiting for you to say Alexa, it's actually passively listening. And yeah. and the and the there's a lot of questions around it's, uh, crunching all the time. Did he just say Alexa? Did he just say Alexa? Yeah. Did he just say Alexa? Yeah. She's asking that twenty four seven. And that takes a lot of cycles, actually. Yeah. And I, it probably makes no difference in the grand scheme of things. Um, but when I go on a trip, like and I'm not going to be home for a week, I unplug Alexa because Same. I just can't stand this, the idea that she's sitting there crunching away on silence, listening for whether somebody said Alexa. Um, it just seems like a huge waste. You have such right. empathy for, for the computers. Well, it's hard not to. I know. know. No, I'm with you. Similarly, my wife wife would unplug things because she's like, oh, I don't want to waste electricity. And I'm like, in a very similar way, I'm like, I want to give Alexa a break. I don't want her to be bored. (laughs) I don't want her to be, yeah. She's got nothing to listen to. None of us are here. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we we willingly step into those role-playing kind of scenarios, I think. Everybody knows that Alexa is not real and there's, there's no actual intelligence or insentience there. But, you know, Apple gave her a name and a personality and a tone of voice because obviously people interact more smoothly with a, a machine that's speaking our language, right? Sure. Um, and we buy into it partly because it's more effective and more fun um, and also because I just think we like having relationships as humans. We like, we try to relate to everything. We anthropomorphize almost everything. You know, it's easy to anthropomorphize a, anthropomorphize a dog or a cat because they actually, you know, have real inner lives and emotions. Right. And, um, but we also anthropomorphize, you know, uh, pet rocks and plants and, you know, um, stuffed animals. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you're making me so you're you're making me think of my, our two year old, and she's actually not two till July, and she's been speaking to Alexa for probably about three months, and I'm thinking also of her, the Joaquin Phoenix movie, which you've probably seen. Oh yeah, of course. yeah, of course. Uh, and I'm wondering, like, is Joaquin Phoenix living in a future world that my daughter is about his age and is part of this generation of humans that will have just all they've ever known is voice technologies and voice AIs. And is it going to be different? Like to, to kind of like play, like, I don't necessarily, I'm not personally dis- like, but to like, to pull at this thread, to disagree with the statement that, well, we know that these are just machines and aren't actual people. Do you think that we're like conditioning, like, should I be worried my two-year-old is being conditioned to really develop um, potentially personal relationships with machines? Is that good? Is that bad? Like how how much does do things change crystal ball 25 years from now when a whole generation of young people have just grown up speaking to Siri and Alexa? I love that question. I don't have a... Um strongly I, I don't have a strong opinion about it but a couple of things come to mind um there are people who have been 
studying this question for a long time of how kids relate to technology and mm-hmm. how they anthropomorphize devices and um, like robots and other toys and computers. Sherry Turkle at MIT is very prominent in this field and um, has written several books on this. And her more recent work has focused on how we um, use and abuse our mobile devices and how you know the, the smartphone explosion has damaged our ability to actually have conversations. But before that, she um, kind of rose to prominence by studying this exact question of whether kids think that computers are alive and how that changes their outlook on um, how that changes the way they interact with people. Right. And how does it shape who they become as social beings? Um, so there's a lot of great literature out there on this. Mm. Um, but this, this is work that Sherry did 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see someone come back and ask the same questions about Siri and Alexa, because it's, we didn't have this always on um, real-time voice interaction technology until very recently. And, you know, even my dog knows what Alexa is. Because when I talk to Alexa, he's like, He's a very smart dog, by the way. But right. when I say, Alexa, what's the weather outside? He looks at Alexa because he knows that she's going to say something back. And he looks over there and says, what's she going to say? He's not going to understand the answer. There's a rewar- there's some sort of reward of sound coming from right here. Well, he knows that somebody's going to talk. Yeah. And he pays attention to humans and right. what they say. Um, and, and in the same way, he's paying attention to Alexa. He, yeah, because he thinks Alexa is, I don't know what he thinks Alexa is, a disembodied voice. Yeah. He might think it's a human on the other end somehow. Yeah. But he knows that she's about to say something because there's this pattern. Yeah. Where I talk to her, she talks to me. He That's wants what to, I he wonder wants to what, be involved. what my daughter thinks. Right. Okay. So I think the upshot of Sherry's work is that until age, you know, a shockingly old age, like age four, or age five, kids have a really fluid understanding of um, whether things are animate or inanimate Mm -hmm. and they don't necessarily uh they might you know it it depends on what you mean by believe but they believe that um a doll can be sentient that Mm -hmm. a doll has feelings um that doll is alive by the same token they could easily believe that a toy robot or just a computer was alive it's you know you don't really start to get that refined sense that this is a machine. It's a very sophisticated machine, but it's not alive until like five later, much later, yeah. like five, six, seven. Um, so I think to answer your question, I'm just speculating here, but I think your daughter, your daughter probably thinks that Alexa and Siri are real. Yeah. And she'll learn that they're not. And I'm, I'm not, I don't think it'll cause any particular damage. Um, yeah. But we are doing this giant experiment we on are, yeah. millions of kids. Yeah. yeah. And it's going to be interesting how it comes out. Yeah. You know, I'm not really worried yet because they're they're still so stupid, right? Yeah. Um, they can't really, yeah, um, influence us in any deep way because nothing they say is all that contentful, um, right? But that's going to change that, very soon. Yeah. The conversations we can have with them, just based on machine learning uh, analysis of patterns yeah. of language, are going to get more elaborate, and then at some point sometime between 20 years from now and yeah. 120 years from now i'm not sure when yeah um we are gonna reach this inflection point and machines are gonna become seemingly intelligent mm-hmm. and 
well, they'll evolve to the point where it doesn't matter whether they're sentient or not. They will be able to do most conversational things with us. Yeah. And then... They'll have a true cognitive ability? Well... Or an appearing... Yeah, they'll they'll have such a good um, appearance or disguise of being intelligent that we'll go ahead and treat them that way. Yeah. Um, I really doubt that machines will ever be sentient, but you never yeah. know. I mean, what because we don't really even know what sentience is. Um, we don't know what consciousness is or how it arises or what defines yeah. it. Um, it may be less. Uh, there may be less to consciousness than we think. In which case, we might accidentally invent consciousness right well this is you know it's what, what we're scratching into now and a recommendation i have is i believe you guys probably know each other but haven't connected in a while but are you uh connected with dan rowinski mm -mm, no do you know dan i do not who's okay. dan rowinski so dan rowinski was the um mobile editor at read write web actually read write for years and years he's out of cambridge and um probably you know it, he was one of, one of the more prominent tech journalists based in Boston for some years. And he has taken a particular keen interest in machine learning for some years now. And he actually has a, his book won a competition, uh, but it's a, it's a fiction about artificial intelligence and the creation and us stumbling into the creation of hmm. consciousness and in a, in a future state 20 to 120 years from now. And uh, he's working on it right now with um, with the group, with the publisher, um, you know, through which the this, this competition he won. And yeah, he's right here in Cambridge. He's you know he's doing some consulting work while he's supporting. This is the second book he's written. Um, really, guys, guys will probably have a fascinating, like, much deeper conversation on this than than cool. I. Cool. Uh, I'd but love I, to meet him sometime. I, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll have to connect you guys. I just I made I made the assumption that you probably had had known each other, but and also his book is called Muse AI. It's kind of he tells the book. You mentioned Greek mythology at one point in this conversation too, but these actually the stories kind of told. The Greek muses are essentially like the the uh, narrator voices throughout the. Hmm. Uh, throughout the novel um <laughs> i've read yeah it's i i got to read an early version of it it's, cool. it's fascinating um yeah you should so you and you'll and you'll also appreciate the book uh yeah there's another book um galatea 2.0 by richard powers that has a similar theme like these people sp spend so much time feeding facts about the world into this um computer system sort of the um this is a view of AI that predates um, neural networking and mm -hmm. um, machine learning. But there was a belief at one time that if you could just teach a computer enough facts about the world, that eventually it would be able to like make sense of the world. And so in, in this Richard Powers novel, there's this team, a uh, couple researchers doing this, just, you know, teaching the computer one thing after another, like grass is green, yeah. you know, buses are a class of vehicles and they go on roads yeah all the little facts that like just seem like common sense but if you taught a computer enough of those things they would start to fit together and it right. would be able to like actually um ask you good questions and make uh realistic suggestions and comments and in the book that's in indeed what happens they feed enough information to this book that the computer is all of a sudden conscious and then they have to decide what to do about that right yeah um, because she's if she's conscious um then is she full being with rights human rights yeah and that's a 
like a question. Yeah. I'm so glad we don't have to deal with that yet. But, right. um, but I think we should start thinking about it. Right. Absolutely. And and even if it never happens, we should start thinking about that question because because there are other beings on this planet that we didn't create, but who are also in this gray zone um, where we we you know as humans we're not sure whether we should accord them full rights as sentient beings. And I'm speaking, of course, of animals. Yeah. Right. And if we could get straight in our own heads, philosophically, spiritually, legally, um, what it means to be sentient and what rights you have, if you're capable of pain, suffering, understanding, compassion, you know, if you perceive the world and you can have the world acts on you and it has an effect on you and you can pl make plans about the world and have feelings about the world at some point, aren't you entitled to, to be treated humanely? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, um, I think most people will probably agree that a fully conscious sentient AI would probably uh, deserve to be treated humanely. Mm -hmm. Um, we would not have the right to torture it. Uh, we might not even have the right to turn it off, um, which would be a form of murder. Mm -hmm. So if we believe that about a machine, why can't we extend the same compassion and understanding to animals, to animals right? Yeah. Um, and we do it to some animals, but not to others. And the yeah. lines are incredibly arbitrary. And so I think that forces us to think about these bigger questions that bear on, you know, the fact that we're we're actually animals on this planet with all these other animals yeah. and we just operate as if that's not true. That's fascinating. So p potentially a way to, to, to make this a, a priority for society. It sounds like we just need to talk to PETA to make it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think they realize it, but yeah, AI and animal rights are closely intertwined in my yeah. brain. And I haven't done an episode on this yet, but I really, really want to. That sounds, that sounds super fascinating. I look for Definitely make that happen. <laughs> uh, before, before we kind of wrap up, do you want to speak briefly about, hub and spoke and and what and what that network of of podcasts is and sort of what it is now and, and what it is you know going to the future yeah thanks for asking about it so i felt like i needed a community when i started doing audio um about three years ago it was all self-taught kind of stuff and there's a lot of great training information and books out there uh, and it is possible to teach yourself how to do audio production. Um, but I realized that um, I was also like in one of the best cities on earth to be learning that stuff because um, because of the legacy of, you know, WGBH and WBUR and all great college radio stations and how many um, podcasters and, and indie audio producers there are here and um, you know, the fact that, um, you know, uh, Jay Allison and Rob Rosenthal and all those folks down in Woods Hole um, are doing Atlantic Public Media and Transom.org and the Salt Institute up in um, Portland. There's just all of these amazing resources, right? And so that made it easier for me to learn. And I got plugged into that community um, around the same exact time I was starting this adventure. Uh, the public radio exchange PRX was um, becoming more active in their outreach, and they they had set up this thing called the PRX Podcast Garage, which is literally a converted Jiffy Lube garage in Alston mm -hmm. um, on land leased to them by Harvard. And they set up a community space and a recording studio and mm -hmm. a kind of co-working environment where there's all sorts of great uh, workshops and training and social events 
and you can rent the studio and you can go in there and um, get tutored on what goes into making uh, good audio. So all of that was there for me, but I still felt like it would be really useful to have an even closer community of um, like-minded podcasters um, so that if nothing else, we could promote each other's shows. Sure. A little, like create some buoyancy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lift each other up. Right. Yeah. I'm making my show yeah. mostly just to get better at making audio. Um, yeah. It's never going to be this American life. It's never going to have millions of listeners. I know that, right? I'm as an indie podcaster. Um, I felt like I wanted to be making the show for myself so I can get better. I want to make it for my listeners um, who can learn more about science and technology and, and their impact on society. Um, and in the end, um, if it's, if it's good and I'm learning from it, that's enough. But I also am vain enough to want to have lots of listeners, right? And the best way to get more listeners in podcasting is to just get your show and its name and its, you know, and its brand in front of people who already listen to podcasts and yeah. like other similar shows. Yeah. So if you can, one of the, and, and I'm sure you know this, like one of the best ways to promote your show is to get mentioned on some other show that probably has listeners who will like your show. Yeah. So, um, and this is exactly why lots of podcasters have banded together into cross promotional networks. There are plenty of these. And, um, I decided that when I wanted to have one of those. Mm -hmm. And also I was meeting some podcasters who were working in, not in the same topic areas, but who had a sensibility that really appealed to me and people I just wanted to work alongside and learn from and grow with. And so in um, late 2017, um, I approached a friend of mine named Tamar Abishai, and Tamar is the creator of The Lonely Palette, which is an art history podcast. Um, it's, a, it's a show dedicated to, in a way, she has a popularization kind of outreach mission that's similar to mine. Her mission is around art and art history. Mm -hmm. My mission is around technology and science. Mm -hmm. But she's trying to basically uh, make the case that um, that art museums are a terrible place for art, in a way. I mean, that's that's a bad yeah. way of putting it. Like, that museums have too much of a they have too strong of a monopoly on art, and that she's trying to bring painting back to the masses, sure. one picture at a time. Yeah, that's kind of her motto. And so, I love it. Yeah, she's it's too to, narrow a funnel through which to experience art. You must be at an art museum to experience art, right? Like, right. right? And yeah. You must read the little <laughs> sign, and you must listen to the curator, and you must go through the museum at this in this way, and follow this path, and learn exactly this. And she's just like, it doesn't no. work for the masses, right? So, um, a podcast about visual arts is a little bit counterintuitive, but but she's so good at it, and she's such a wonderful storyteller, and and has such deep art historical insight. She really wowed me with her show. And I said, our show, we're doing, we're trying to do similar things on different topics. How would you feel about kind of throwing our fates in together and trying to create a network of our shows and other similar shows? Yeah. And we'll call it Hub and Spoke because it's in Boston, which is the hub. And um, Spoke is, I don't know if it's obvious or not, but it's a pun on spoken word. Mm -hmm. And it also implies that it kind of it, it it also symbolizes the fact that the network has a hub and spoke kind of bicycle style sure. organization. There's a hub of shows. There's a hub. double entendre there. So there's like three of them. There's yeah. a few for for hub and spoke. I love it. The point is yeah. the, the, the network is centered in Boston, but it's not exclusively a Boston-based network, and there are and will be shows from outside of Boston. So that's cool. the hub and smoke model, and our whole goal is to help each other 
um, grow the audiences for our shows and over time tr translate that into revenue and other forms of support so that we, we each indie podcaster is right with day jobs and we'd love to spend less time doing our day jobs and more time making our shows. Sure. So that's the long-term goal of Hub and Spoke. And there will be Likewise. more announcements later this year about, you know, additions to the network. And yeah. um, we're really excited about where we're going. That's cool. Yeah. I'm super excited to see where Hub and Spoke goes. And it, it was, I really appreciate like for, for listeners, like I reached out to Wade just being a, a new podcaster and appreciating the work that he was doing. And I reached out to Hub and Spokes, like, general info email and Wade personally got back to me, which I like really appreciate. And I was like, wait, Wade. Oh, wait a second. Oh, I was, you're on my list to reach out to for soonish, but oh, so you're behind Hub and Spoke. Wow. Like that's a really interesting little web of things you've created in only a few years. So very impressive. And also like super appreciative of how responsive and collaborative you've been so far. However, over time, uh, Boston speaks up, but more broadly, just, you know, fabric media and, 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 um, you know, maybe we can talk more offline, but however we can collaborate more and obviously this helps, but just spread the word about what you're up to. And sounds like you'll have a couple podcasts in the future that I'll particularly keenly be interested in listening to myself, but certainly will want to share. And one of the things that's nice about the community we're building here at Boston speaks up is starting to create this feedback loop with the, this will be, this is, um, podcast 17 and like quarterly I wanted to have touch bases with previous interviewees such that just touch base like how are things what are you up to what are new initiatives and pushing that out via the Boston Speaks Up social ha social handles and getting that out in the Boston newsletter just sharing like hey here's a revisit to the to the uh, folks we spoke to the first half of this year we're going to do that next month and just kind of recap what everyone's been up to since uh, definitely just completely agree with you wholeheartedly like spreading spreading the word and and hopefully creating longer term opportunities to make this a bit more of the primary thing we all do and and create more good audio storytelling i think is is valuable um i think there's plenty of people seeking that out and someone who's checked the box of i've honestly had personal conversations with probably a little short of a hundred people at just they would just devour more and more podcasts like 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 soonish like what you're up to if they just ex if more and more existed and you know the two things are one discovering they exist and two just having more uh, monetization frameworks such that people can invest more of their day job in the produ the production of good of good audio so looking forward yeah. to that moving forward and however we can kind of play thank you play play a, a role working together Great. i'd love to come back sometime yeah. too and uh yeah i hope people will check out soonish at soonishpodcast.org and there are four other shows in the network right now i think they probably like all of them including uh, ministry of ideas which is a show about politics and history and philosophy. Um, Iconography, which is a show about, it's also about history in a way, but it focuses on history through the lens of specific places and things that are uh, iconographic. Um, there's a show called Culture Hustlers that might be particularly interesting to you and your, your listeners because it's all about the business of art and how you make um, video or um, painting or public art um, into a real business and how you survive as an artist. Um, and then, of course, there's The Lonely Palette, which is Great. tomorrow's art history show. And more to come. Cool. So thanks, Zach. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Wade. This was really fun. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. Cheers, Boston.